Skylar Niece, age 16, was last seen getting into an unknown car outside of her home in Star City, West Virginia, at 12.31 a.m. on Friday, July 6, 2012. Family members describe her as being 5 foot 4 inches to 5 foot 5 inches tall, weighing approximately 135 to 145 pounds, with straight dark brown hair and blue eyes. She was last seen wearing yellow shorts and a greenish multicolored shirt. If you have any information concerning her whereabouts, please contact the Star City Police Department. This was Skylar's missing poster. They were plastered all over Star City, West Virginia. It had been 60 days without seeing those bright blue eyes. 60 days without hearing the song that is her laughter. 60 days since two girls she considered her friends stabbed her over and over because simply they could. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we are going to wrap up the Skylar Niece case. Last week, we watched the aftermath in the month after Skylar disappeared into the night in an unidentified car. Two teenage girls' lives start to unravel at two separate points. One was able to differ any and all emotion wrapped up in murdering her friend, and the other is slowly starting to lose the battle with her own conscience. We will see just how Rachel's spiral out of control helped bring the house of lies she and Sheila built crumbling to the ground. Three families' lives is in the wake of the destruction, and none of them will ever be the same again. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, adult situations, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel that any of this may be too much for you, please have someone listen for you or with you. Before we get into tonight's episode, I just wanted to take a smidge of time for a little bit of business. Don't forget to go check out my Facebook and Instagram page at the True Crime Librarian. There, I'll have a link posted to go spool yourself with the new True Crime Librarian gear. Please go like and follow so you never miss any case coming your way or updates from the librarian. And now, to tonight's third and final part of We Just Didn't Like Her, the Skylar Niece case. September 2012. Officer Colbank and FBI agent Morgan Spurlock scour the amount of information that they have collected in the past month. One thing is becoming extremely clear with them. Sheila and Rachel are not telling them everything that they know. And it's obvious, you know, teenagers think that they can withhold information and other people cannot see that they are not telling the whole thing. They seem to think that they know everything, and that is the teenage mindset. Why are you telling this? I already know this. Ugh, just, I'm, I'm practically grown, mom. You know, I have a teenager. It wasn't long ago I was a teenager. I can still remember being this kind of a sasshole, and it doesn't change. I mean, the teenager changes, and their name changes, and the gender changes, but the attitude stays the same. 
across the board. These girls are no different. They think that they can get away with what they've done and simply just not saying anything means nothing happened. Nothing went wrong. Nowhere. How could it? With Gaskins and Barry now invested into this investigation, there was a whole new outlook on this case. These two gentlemen brought forth something that Colbank and Spurlock had yet to see, and they needed these fresh eyes. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes things need an outside opinion, an outside look on it. And when Gaskins and Barry decided they were going to dedicate their time into helping find Skylar, of course, they were already busy. They had their the bank robbery for Huntington National Bank. They were working on that case. And somewhere in the like far reach of it, they thought that Skylar's disappearance was part of this whole bank robbery. However, it didn't take long to talk to Mary and Dave or to Colbank and Spurlock to figure out Skylar had nothing to do with this. This had nothing to do with Skylar disappearing. However, everybody could feel the severity of the disappearance as each day passed. And I can remember reading not too long ago that somewhere in the depths of the research that I do do, for every hour that a child or teenager has gone missing or is missing, the likelihood of them being found alive diminishes anywhere from 1% to 5% every hour. That is terrifying. As a parent, as a person who would never wish another's child go missing, that's a terrifying number. It seems small, but when you think of it, in just 24 hours, the chances of finding the child alive are anywhere, almost nothing. You know, the math is just, it's, it's not good. Let's just put it that way. Right off the top of my head, I'm, I'm not able to spout off any kind of number, but 24 hours, anywhere from 1% to 5%, that almost gets you nothing. Your chances of finding them alive is almost zero. Anywhere from zero to like 76%. I would rather have the 76 than the zero, that's for sure. Investigators, they have been hitting a dead end after a dead end after a dead end. It was getting to a point that they they just didn't have anywhere to turn. So with Gaskins and Barry coming on at the time that they did, they sparked this new kind of light into the investigators and really shoved them to think outside of what they were looking at. One thing was clear, though, at this point. They knew whoever was driving the car seen in the grainy footage had to have been the person to last see Skylar alive or before she disappeared. And so figuring out who owned that car, who drove that car, was their priority number one. And since Sheila and Rachel were like, well, we, you know, we picked her up at 11, so I don't know who that is. They really kept running, you know, just into the wall. They'd hit the wall back up, hit the wall back up. It wasn't clear to them. Now, us looking back, we're, we're asking the most important question. Where is Sheila's car at 11 p.m. on July 5th of 2012 in that footage? We see that. We are in hindsight, though. When you're looking at that and you're trying to peg down who that is, it seems to have slipped their mind that 
where is Sheila's car at 11 p.m.? That's not a question. That's not a thought. That's not an afterthought right now in the investigation. And since Colbank had already had her suspicions that Sheila was not telling them everything that she needed or everything that she knew, Mary had gone complete left field and cut Sheila out. She was done. She didn't want her around her. She didn't want to hear what she had to think about Skylar and Skylar's disappearance or what was going on. Because in Mary's eye, Sheila was being suspicious. Plain and simple. Now, on September 6th of 2012, Jessica Colbank filed for a couple warrants. And they were both in regards to Sheila and Rachel. She asked the magistrate to find probable cause to allow the investigators to search the persons and homes of both of the teens, Sheila and Rachel. She took it down and the warrants were signed immediately, which meant that Colbank had no wait time to continue investigating this case. So the warrants, what they included was the Investigators have the power to seize any and all devices that allow transmission of vocal and electronical signals, i.e. desktops, cell phones, laptops. So they were able to go into these girls' homes and take their computers, their laptops, their cell phones, whatever. It, if they could get on the internet or if they could transmit a message from one device to another, they were picked up with the exception of one computer left in the show's home so that Patricia could work from home. But this also meant Rachel had the ability to get online. She had the ability to message. She had the ability to tweet. It was all there for her. Sheila, it's never quite clear if all of the devices are removed from her home because she tweets the entire time that investigators have possession of her devices. It's so whether she's using computers from school or terrorist computer or, you know, her stepfather's computer, whatever it is, Sheila is able to still communicate in the social media world. This is also the same day that Colbank receives Sheila's phone records. Okay, this is very important because she subpoenaed for them prior to filing the warrants and she only subpoenaed for Sheila's records. They have yet to ask for Rachel's because Colbank had a gut instinct that Sheila was the queen bee of whatever went down that night. And so if she could nail her, she could nail Rachel. But again, looking back, had she paid a little bit more attention and she gone after Rachel first, nailing Sheila down, it would have occurred quicker had she went for the weaker one instead of the one at the top. But I guess if you are in this competitive race, and I'm going to say it's competitive because in the end, it's about who can outsmart who, Colbank versus Sheila. And at this point, Sheila is one up on Colbank because she knows what happened and she's not talking and Colbank has nothing to make her talk just yet. So Colbank has her records. And in the, in the time between July 4th to July 10th, this child sent 5,215 text messages and phone calls. That is an average of six days. So in a 30-day period, you're looking at close to 30,000 
transmitted phone calls and text messages just in 30 days. That means that she would have to touch her phone anywhere from 800 to 981 times a day in order to accrue this level of communication. Sheila was all about that cell phone. You know, most teens are, but she's an extreme. I don't think I've ever picked up a phone bill and in six days noticed that my child had, you know, had sent 5,000. I'd have fell on the floor. And at this time, remember, text messages and phone calls, they're not unlimited just yet. It's still evolving. Well, I know, 2012, yeah, we have a couple carriers that are offering unlimited things. But still, it's not cheap. So Colbank knew she had about mm, 150 pages worth of material she needed to go through. But since she had warrants in hand, her first stop was University High School. She wanted to talk to Sheila and she wanted to talk to Rachel. Off she goes. And on September 7th of 2012, Colbank, Spurlock, Gaskins, and Barry served the first of these warrants to these teenage girls. They walk into University High School. Now, let's, let me take a second and, and make sure this is clear. At this point, Sheila Eddy and Rachel Shove have not been named as a suspect in any form or fashion. They are just person of interest because they hold some information that could be beneficial to the case. That's it, plain and simple. They have no idea that Skylar's not just missing, that she's dead. Not yet, anyways. So the four of them walk into the high school and they go into the office and there's some blowback when they show up because the assistant principal is like, why are you tormenting these girls? They're good girls. They get good grades. We, you know, we don't see them in trouble very often. And Colbank's like, I don't care what you think you see. These girls are anything but angels. So in walk Rachel and Sheila. And as soon as they lay eyes on the four investigators, their face falls. They were smiling, laughing, and cutting up the entire way to the office. But as soon as they walk in the door and see who's there to talk to them, fun and games is out the window. And Colbank, well, she wants Sheila. They split up. And Colbank and Barry, they go and talk to Sheila, while Gaskins and Spurlock are left to talk with Rachel. And on Sheila, and they seize her phone. And then in her purse, they locate a bag of marijuana. And at this point, Sheila flips out. You know, she's six, 17. She's just shy of her 17th birthday. And when somebody of authority finds you in possession of something you shouldn't have, your first instinct is to break down because you have no idea what's coming your way, you know? What kind of trouble are you going to be in? So Sheila breaks down and she's crying and she's telling them, just take the drugs. Just take them and flush them. I don't even care. Just take them. I don't want them. Because in her mind, that is the worst thing that could come of talking to them. Not the fact that they have the device in which she has communicated with Rachel and Skylar both on. No, that's not where her train of thought is. So Colbank is like, look, I'm not going to bust you for a little bit of pot. I'm not even here for that and I could care less. However, I am going to let your assistant principal take care of this matter. So they talk with Sheila and get what they want. And she goes on about her married with Lay. The baggie is placed on the assistant principal's desk. And Colbank snidely remarks, I got this off your angelic Sheila. 
you can deal with it how you see fit. And that's it. Like I said, she's not there to bust her because she's in some drugs. No, we have a child missing. And these two girls know something. In one way or another, they're going to figure out what it is they know. Now, with Rachel, it is documented that um, she was a little reluctant to turn over her password. She handed her phone over and fine. But the password that protected her phone, eh, that she was a little bit more reluctant with that one. But eventually she gave in and investigators walked out of the high school with both of their cell phones. And what happened to the girls regarding the, the narcotics, if you want to call them that, it's pot. Nobody knows. But obviously they weren't these good little girls like the administration thought they were. The next stop is the Eddie Clinton home and the Shove home. And for this, they split up yet again. And Colbank goes to Sheila's house. From the home, computers were seized. Like I said before, Patricia Shope was allowed to keep her computer because she worked from home. And later that night, Rachel would tweet from her mother's computer about how she was jealous of Sheila and Tara's relationship. At this point, Patricia is pissed off. She doesn't understand why her daughter isn't cooperating with the questions that are being asked during the investigation. Her daughter is now sneaking off and hanging out with Sheila when she's supposed to be doing other things. Rachel is, I don't care. That's where her mentality is. I don't care what you say or what you think. I'm going to do what I want because you don't even know what I'm capable of doing. That's most teenagers' mindset, except for the fact that they're not capable of wielding a knife and stabbing someone they call their friend and I use air quotes for that because no friend does what these girls did but Rachel she's starting to break and she's defying right here at the start of the spiral it's not pretty but what spiral out of control is Rachel eventually moves in with her father not long after the warrants were served for her devices and Patricia is bound and determined to figure out what's going on with her daughter. So she has a real good close friend set up a lunch date and Rachel and her mother's friend go out to lunch. Now, why is this a big deal? Why are we bringing up? Why are we talking about it? Because this is where it gets interesting. So Rachel sits down to have a conversation and lunch with this girl, this lady that's friends with her mom that she's known for a while. And this friend is trying to get Rachel to talk about what she knows. And Rachel's shutting down. And then something comes out of Rachel's mouth that just sends off alarms everywhere. She says she had to talk with Tara before she said anything else. Those are where the bells and, and the whistles and the bright flashing lights are going off. Why was she having to talk to Tara first? Tara is not her mother. Patricia is. What is it that Tara has over Rachel that means that she has to talk to her before actually talking to her mother or her father? Two plus two is not equal in four here, okay? So this is where questions start flying. She's like, why won't you tell me what's wrong? What really happened that night? What are you not saying? Did you girls get into a fight? 
and Rachel, she nods her head yes. She doesn't say anything. She just nods. And so the friend goes, well, you know, I'm sure when you picked her up, you were in the front seat. And Rachel nods again. And so the friend's like, so Skylar was pissed that she had to get in the back seat and you got to ride up front with Sheila, right? And again, Rachel nods. The friend asks, was she jealous of you? And Rachel nods. And she says, that's why she and Sheila are constantly at each other, isn't it? And again, Rachel nods. Rachel does not say one word. Not one. She simply nods. And then this question. Did something go wrong? And Rachel's head moves up and down faster than before. And so we ask the magic question. What happened to Skylar? And Rachel finally uses her words and says, We got into a fight and she ran. Skylar ran away into the woods. And at that, lunch date was pretty much over. Patricia's friend and, and Rachel, they leave the restaurant and you can tell that they've been crying and this was just an emotional lunch together. But it was also very apparent. Rachel was terrified to say what she knew. So she nodded for her questions that she wasn't supposed to answer. And when she finally realized, I might have given a little too much away, then she's like, well, she ran away in the woods, you know. I think I was okay with saying that. I, don't, I didn't talk to Sheila's mom about this first. That irritates the crap out of me. I don't care who your daughter's or your son's friends are. The second they start putting you above their own parents, we need to start asking questions. Why? Why are they doing this? What are you doing to come in between a child and their parent? That's not okay. The only time I will say it is okay is if there is something seriously going wrong at home. But for Rachel, she wasn't abused. She wasn't neglected. None of that was what was coming up with this conversation. It was the other way around. Rachel wasn't saying what she knew. And Patricia could not fathom why her daughter would not say what she knew. How hard was it? Open your mouth and tell me what happened that night. But Rachel had to talk to Tara first. There's one thing that is very apparent that comes out from this lunch date between Rachel and Patricia's friend. And that is that Tara is not only helping Rachel sneak out and hang out with her daughter Sheila, she's also actively helping the girls align their stories up. This is not normal. No parent should be trying to make sure. I get it. You know, you don't want to think your kid is capable of doing something this bad, but she is. She did. On September 24th of 2012, Colbank is now curious as to what Rachel was trying to hide in her cell phone records because she didn't want to give up her cell phone password. And now she wants to know why. Well, she gets the records. And guess what? When Sheila and Rachel were supposed to be with Skylar on the night of July 5th at 11 p.m., the two girls were not even in the same location. They were texting and calling each other during this time. That means their story of 
rolling up and picking Skylar up at 11 p.m. and dropping her off about 45 minutes later because she gets pissed off at him is absolute bull. They're lying. And you didn't need to be, you know, some kind of brainiac to figure it out. All you had to do is pull the records. September offered a couple major breaks for the team of investigators. Not only were Sheila and Rachel not with Skylar when they said they were, because the phone records have clarified that for them, Barry realizes that it may be Sheila's car they are looking at in the grainy footage. Now, it's never confirmed, and it's not something that gets any traction when it's first said. These investigators, they watch that footage every day, frame by frame, forwards, backwards, upside down. They look at this at every angle. And yes, it's mentioned that it's possibly that Sheila's car they're seeing in the footage, but that gets no traction. Not yet. At this point, Sheila and Rachel's families have hired outside counsel, and that way the girls have someone there to help mediate during their interviews with investigators. Just because you hire counsel doesn't mean that you're guilty. However, it does look like you've got something to hide. And in our country where you are supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, typically you're guilty until proven innocent. And hiring counsel just muddies the water. As from an outsider looking in, it's never good when someone hires counsel. Nine times out of ten, they have something juicy that they should be saying that their lawyers are keeping them from saying. Because everybody also has the right to not self-incriminate. That is amendment number five. You don't have to incriminate yourself. And lawyers are really good at keeping their clients away from saying something that could. At this point, we have anonymous Twitter accounts that emerge. And these accounts... Whoever ran them, let me just say first, you were dead on the nail every time you posted. Every time. Whoever was feeding you information, they were some of the best informants ever known to man. I don't even think the mob had as good of informants as these two girls were, or two people. Let me just put it this way. Snyder28 Josie and Mia Bar 8. These two accounts, anonymously built by someone, they erupted overnight. Why? Um, Because it seemed as though that the only reason these two accounts were created was to berate Sheila and Rachel. Snyder28 Josie, she tweeted, Besties don't like to answer questions of their guilt. This was a tweet directed towards Mia Bar 8. However, since they only arose during the case and during the investigation and from all intents and purposes have come out of Star City, West Virginia, are now actively subtweeting Sheila and Rachel, we know who they're talking about. Regardless of who they're tweeting to, the conversation never brings up a name. However, doesn't take an Einstein to figure it out. Here's Two things came from this onslaught of social media traffic that the case was getting. Number one, it was becoming clear that Skylar was not just missing. She was dead. 
And number two, Sheila and Rachel were culpable. They had their finger in the honey jar. We just needed to figure out how. Sheila got strength from support from Shayna, and she tweeted back to Mia Bar 8. And a fake Twitter account. You don't know shit, so do us a favor and shut your fucking mouth. Again, the language. But, you know, teenagers are teenagers. Sheila's cousin by marriage. She stood up for Sheila and Rachel on the Team Skyler heart emoji Facebook page. And she wrote, pardon me for being so blunt and know that I feel so much for Mary and Dave and their situation. I can't imagine the things they're going through at this moment. But for those of you trying to place blame on any of Skylar's friends, all you are doing is taking away the innocence and life of another's child. Placing blame on someone does not automatically bring Skylar home. We are all here to help Mary and Dave through their struggle and bring back their beautiful little girl, not ruin someone else's life. End quote. Now, make no mistake, people were obviously taking sides during this. You either backed Sheila and Rachel or you were against them. There was no in-between. Unfortunately, those who were supporting Sheila and Rachel had no idea who it was they were supporting. I think had they known, I don't, I don't feel like they'd have as many supporters. I just, this case is just... It's horrendous to think that two teenage girls can do something so heinous all because, eh, I didn't like her. Well, a lot of people didn't like me in high school either, but here I am talking true crime with you. So it gets better. It gets easier. As the heat from stairs of not only their classmates, but the heat coming from the investigators started to break a sweat across Rachel's brow. She would whine at her mother to please make them stop. She was beginning to crack. Something that would eventually cause everyone to stop guessing and start speculating as to why. On October 26, 2012, Josie Snyder and Mia Barr were cracking down on the amount of subtweeting that was going on. And even then, that didn't account for the amount of direct tweeting going on. This tweet went out. Bring pretty little liars down together. Hashtag promise to never leave you cold. Here's the thing. Investigators had already dubbed Sheila and Rachel pretty little killers, pretty little liars, after the television show. They were already dubbed that. It was not released to media. Nobody else had any clue that that's what these, pe these four people were calling these girls as they investigated them. But now Josie Snyder and Mia Barr, they picked up on it. Sheila and Rachel will forever be known as the pretty little killers. Josie tweeted again the next day on October 27th with the song lyrics, Turn 21 in prison, doing life without parole. Hashtag love oldies music. A few days later, another tweet went live with what you gonna do, what you gonna do when they come for you. Nevertheless, the pressure was coming down on the heads of Rachel and Sheila, and Rachel, she was the weak link. Like I said before, had investigation, had Colbank decided to target Rachel 
I think she would have got a little bit further, a little bit faster. Rachel was the obvious weak link. She had this air to her due to the uh, religion that she practiced. She went to two church camps over the summer. One, just days after killing her friend, quote unquote friend. Friends don't do this to friends. But so she was, re she was raised with religion, with not just any religion, with Catholic religion. And this was the ultimate sin. You know, you're not supposed to take the life of another human being. That is one of the Ten Commandments. Rachel knows this. But however, in her eyes, taking Skylar's life because she may be gay seemed to be lesser of the two. So, was she really following religion? No. Uh-uh. I think she was following teenage logic at this point. I don't think religion played a part until after it happened. And then that's where Rachel's Jiminy Cricket came to play. In November of 2012, it was the opening night of University High School's fall play, A Midsummer's Night Dream. And... As everyone was running around and tying up last-minute loose ends, doing makeup, putting the last piece to their costume on, Daniel, Skylar's friend, he was in the play with Rachel. And he was watching Rachel because from the moment school started, Daniel knew Rachel knew something about what happened to Skylar. And he was going to make her say it out loud. Now, he had to lay off on the obvious person-to-person -person interrogations that he was doing at the beginning of school because teachers were starting to notice he was treating Rachel in the manner that he was. Okay, so he had to lay off, but that didn't mean he didn't keep a close eye on her. And that night, she was in the hallway talking with her mother, Patricia, and Daniel recounts that... Patricia and Rachel were having a heated discussion, and then all of a sudden, Patricia raises her hand and connects with Rachel's cheek before screaming, get your shit together, Rachel. Now, Daniel's recount, and according to one of Patricia's friends, that's not the right recount. Patricia would never lay hands on her daughter. It would not be impossible, but that's just not who she knew Patricia to be. So, whether or not Patricia actually laid her hand on Rachel that night, that's not even it. The fact that she had to tell her daughter to get her shit together because it was obvious that she is starting to lose control of her life, there's where the problem lies. Because the night before was the final run-through play, and I, I'm assuming generally family, close friends, and, you know, other students who were not partaking in the actual scenes, they're invited to that preview night. Rachel's understudy had to perform her parts because Rachel was too busy hanging out with Sheila to even attend that. And it's reported that Patricia was pissed because come opening night, she's figured out her daughter wasn't where she said she was. She wasn't at the play. No, she's off valigant around with Sheila. And so Patricia's like, dude, look, you've got talent. And if you don't get your crap together, we're never going to make anything of it. And Rachel, she can't think of anything other than what happened that night. Plain and simple. The one thing that did come away from all of this was the two girls, Rachel, Shof, and 
Sheila Eddy, they went from being their angels that the assistant principal called them or claimed that they were to getting into trouble almost daily, requiring them to go to the office and their parents be phone called more than once a week. They are starting to blow off their responsibilities. They're starting to skip class. They're starting to smoke more and more weed. It's reported that they are also starting to dabble into the harder drugs. True or not, I don't know. Eric Finch, Chrissy Swanson, and Aaron Rope. They are all peers of Rachel, Sheila, and Skylar. They all knew the girls. Some of them very close with the girls. They were subpoenaed as witnesses to testify in front of the federal grand jury, a process that should be secretive. However, Sheila and Rachel catch wind, and they want to know what it is they're talking about. Um, this obviously sets Rachel off. Her nerves are shot. She's having a hard time dealing with the fact that she knows people are going and testifying, but what they're testifying about, nobody knows because you're not supposed to say, but these teenagers don't know how to keep a secret. It is speculated, though, that they were testifying to a local drug ring kind of thing and the tie-ins that could possibly have with the bank robbery that had occurred. However, it also could bring into information of the disappearance of Skylar. These records are sealed. You have no idea what that grand jury was for. You don't have any idea what they said, what they testified to. We can only speculate. Sheila and Rachel think they're testifying about Skylar. Everybody else, well, hell, you've just had a bank robbed. You've got Skylar disappearing. And then you've got a couple brothers who have been known to throw some parties that are in some legal trouble. So what it is they could be testifying to, eh, you got one of three options. And since nobody had been formally named as a suspect, heck, they weren't even completely sure that Skylar was dead. They were 99% positive. They just didn't have a body. They didn't have a murder weapon. They didn't have a murder site. They had nothing. But what teenager disappears for four months and nobody hears or sees or anything of her? None of the I saw Skylar at a local drug house, that didn't pan out. None of the sightings panned out because Skylar wasn't there. Usually when Rachel got on Twitter and would tweet, she was very bright, cheery, and just uplifting. However, once this whole grand jury thing happened, she went down this dark tunnel and she ended up tweeting, quote, sick of being let down. You can speculate it's because she felt like people that she knew, people that she thought she could be close with, were somehow stabbing her in the back. But that's how teenagers work. If you say one negative thing about them, then all of a sudden, you know, you're talking bad about them behind their back. No, that's not, not what's going on. But that's how her mind worked. You went and you talked in front of a judge and a jury and... Really, honestly, that's not how it works, but okay. The way she sees it is what's televised on TV, and she feels like these people were talking about her. Although, after Chrissy Swanson gets done testifying, she makes it perfectly clear to Sheila she did not testify about Skylar. 
she was there testifying about drugs. Whether that's true, I don't know. Wouldn't hold any weight to it. Tell you that much. Sheila ends up mirroring Rachel following her sick of being let down tweet. And Sheila tweets, FM freaking L. Now, we all know what FML stands for. If you don't, go Google it because unless I absolutely have to say the word, I'm not gonna. Just know it's your life is following down. The, it's going down the toilet. It's not a good thing. FML is not a good thing. The following day after the girls found out about these teens testifying in the federal grand jury, Sheila switches gears on social media again, and she posts one of her most infamous Twitter posts. Quote, no one on this earth can handle me and Rachel, and if you think you can, you're wrong. Was this a warning to the peers set to testify? Maybe. Was this a warning to investigators who were looking into Skylar's disappearance and the fact that Sheila and Rachel may have something to do with it? Possibly. I think it was just an overall general warning that if you get them two together and they set their mind on something, it's going to happen. That is one of her most infamous tweets, though. And if you can get Twitter to go that far back, you can see it yourself. It's still very public. I would say that... It would be more Sheila that feels untouchable than it is Rachel. Now, together, making plans and bullshitting about, you know, hey, you want to go take this one out? That's nothing. That's nothing. The fact that they were able to wield a knife and, and stab the way they could, that that's something. The fact that Rachel is deteriorating day by day, that's even a bigger something. To me, that says... It's not Sheila and Rachel together, it's Sheila. And Sheila, she's terrifying. Sheila tried to alleviate Rachel's worries about what their peers were doing and saying in front of the grand jury by texting her, quote, Mark said, is all going to be about drugs. Mark, possibly meaning her attorney, Mike Benninger. It is never made clear of who she is referring to in this text exchange because Mark, there's not a Mark. Mike, yes. Mark, no. So we can speculate, the word of the day, that that's who she's talking about. Rachel, she's not biting though. She's like, okay, how does he know that's all this is about? I'm sure it's more for me. Rachel's convinced her head is on the chopping block, and it's just going to take the right word to cut it off. She's convinced. It's all about her. But when you think along the lines that Rachel is thinking about this point, generally it's because you are guilty. That is a guilty conscience coming to light. It's about me. Of course it's about you. Because you think we all can see the thing that you're hiding. It's not, but that's the way that mind is working. Sheila, she tries one more time and gives a little bit more knowledge of how she knew. She texts Rachel back saying, quote, because that's what the U.S. attorney said they're going to follow the drugs to get to Skylar, end quote. Now, the rumor mill, it's running fast paced, okay? When you have nothing to go on. There's no evidence. There's no body. There's no murder weapon. There's nothing. There is zero. You have a teenager who can't seem to put her freaking phone down 
and you've got two of them telling a story that is obviously not true, none of which means they are guilty. Not yet. But the rumor mill with teenagers being involved and the fact that it's somebody they know, it's charring out the stories. One of those stories is that Skylar was taken to a drug house. Again, remember, that's where the last one of the sightings came from was Skylar was in a drug house. But the rumor is that Skylar was taken to a drug house. She ended up dabbling into some hard drugs, not knowing her limit, and overdosed. And then the girls left her scared of what other people were going to say. That's one of the rumors that have come out. So when Sheila is saying that they're going to follow the drugs to Skylar, that's because there is high speculation that drugs are involved in this. And they're not wrong. Where they are wrong is it was just weed. It wasn't heroin. It wasn't meth. It wasn't PCP, acid, whatever. It wasn't any of that. It's nothing in the hard crap. No, it's weed. So if they are following the drugs to get to Skylar, you just simply have to figure out the weed trail. Skylar was not dumb. She smoked weed to impress Sheila, but she wasn't about to put anything else in her body that could alter her in such a drastic way. Why would she give up her future for that? That's not who she is. Early in December, the girls, they found out some news that was far worse than figuring out their friends were being involved in some sort of grand jury. Investigators were wanting both girls to come in and take a polygraph. Their stories weren't lining up. They were almost word for word, but they weren't in the same sense because nobody tells the same story over and over and over exactly the same each time. The story will follow the same plot line and same timeline, but the words are different. With Sheila and Rachel, verbatim. And so investigators now are like, let's bring them in. Let's do a lie detector test on them and let's catch them in the lie that we know that they are telling. And then maybe that will lead us to the truth of what happened that night. Well, pop back up one of our anonymous Twitter accounts, Josie Snyder, and she tweets, Pretty Little Liars Keep On Lying. Followed by, ever seen that show, I Almost Got Away With It? They Always Get Caught. May take a little, but criminals end up behind bars with a smiley face. Again, we need to question, we should probably ask the question, who is Josie Snyder and Mia Barr? Where are they getting their intel? Because from my standpoint, whoever created these accounts have ties to law enforcement who are actively working this investigation. Because, it, you know, the girls are just now learning they have to take a polygraph test and out comes Josie Snyder with pretty little liars keep on lying. How? It's, it, at this point, it's more than a coincidence. Several people were named persons of interest, not by the police, though. It's by those on the Team Skylar heart emoji page. At this point, like I said before, Mary and Dave were banished from this. They were no longer allowed to be administrators. They were trying to curb the negative talk that was going on about Skylar or the speculation that Skylar OD'd or Sheila and Rachel have something to do with it. Because in the beginning, 
Regardless of what Mary felt thanks to Colbank and her suspicions, Dave tried to remain supportive to Skylar's friends because that's what Skylar would want him to do. At this point, it's getting harder to ignore, but this Team Skylar page that popped up first, it turned into a big whodunit. And it's not impossible for those on Facebook that are part of these groups or these pages to pick up on something and change the course of an investigation. It's not impossible. I dare you to go watch Don't F With Cats on Netflix. It is based solely on detective work done by those in those kind of pages. However, they were constructive. The people who are pointing fingers in this Team Skylar's page, they're not being constructive. They're being destructive. They are saying, I heard Sally Mae say that she didn't like that Skylar wore mismatched socks this one day, so Sally did it. No, mm -mm, that's not being constructive. Where is your proof? You don't have any. Instead, you're sitting behind a keyboard being a warrior. Unfortunately, the rise of Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, YouTube, we have all taken away the confrontation that comes from saying something that is not the common opinion. And therefore, we have what we call our keyboard warriors that have emerged. They do not have to sit with the person face to face. They can say negative things behind their keyboard and their screen. Nobody knows who they are. They could have a fake name and alias on the internet. Nobody knows that. And therefore, they feel, because there's this cloak of invisibility around them due to the fact that nobody knows who exactly they are, they can say whatever they want to. It happens every day. People are bullied Name called, ridiculed, one to ten, doesn't matter. Every day on the internet. This Team Skylar page, because there was no censoring going on, that's the beauty of having a page. You can censor to your materials. Mary and Dave tried it. Instead, they got booted from their daughter's very own support page. It needed to be done because actively nobody who was named on this page really truly had something to do with it. So here's a couple of people who initially had fingers pointed at them. We have Dylan Conaway. Remember I was talking about these brothers that had gotten in trouble in middle of September, early October. They were in some problems with the parties that they had thrown and the drugs and possible underage sex. Dylan, his older brother, was one of those. It is never made clear whether or not Dylan was ever indicted on charges, but his brother was. So Dylan, he was the younger of the two Conaway brothers from Blacksville. Both brothers, they knew Sheila from her time of living in Blacksville. However, with Dylan, how the two are linked was supposedly Dylan was her first sexual encounter before she moved to Morganstown in 2012. And Sheila, Rachel, and Skylar had attended several of Dylan and Derek's parties. So, there goes a finger. Dylan did it. 
Did he do it? No. Did he have partake in any of it? No. The next person to be named suspect off Team Skyler's page was Derek Conaway. He was the oldest of the two. And he was indicted in September of 2012 on five counts of third-degree sexual assault, which means he engaged in sexual activities with someone over the age of 14, but under the age of 16, which was the age of legal consent in West Virginia. So he had these charges against him. So he's got sexual deviance. He hosted the parties that Sheila, Rachel, and Skylar had attended. Hey, Derek did it. He didn't. He didn't have anything to do with it. The next one up was Shayna Amons. She was close to Sheila. Now, it's reported that she's like a distant cousin by marriage. Um, nevertheless, she's very close friends with Sheila. I think even to this day, even though she was let down by Sheila. Shayna, she was so close to Sheila and she immediately stood up for her friend Sheila thinking there's no way Sheila can have anything to do with Skylar's disappearance. Sheila loved Skylar. That was her best friend. How could anybody think that Sheila had anything to do with it? She stood up for her very early on. The very, almost from the very moment Sheila's name was mentioned during the investigation, there's Shayna standing up for her. So you're sticking up for a murderer, possibly, definitely a liar. Eh, you did it. Guess what? Shayna didn't do it. There's no ties to her having any role in Skylar's disappearance at all. Next up, Chrissy Swanson. She was targeted because she is related to Sheila. She's like a first cousin, second cousin, somewhere in there. And she was close to the trio of girls. She knew Sheila, Rachel, Skylar, well, they were all friends. And guess what? She stood up for Sheila early on in the investigation. So Chrissy did it. Newsflash, spoiler, Chrissy didn't do it. Next up, Lexi Eddy. Very related to Sheila, obviously. She also stood up for her early on in the investigation. And this makes her an easy target. Now, we're going to jump ahead just a little bit here. In early 2013, there is some tweeting or text exchange between the two that makes you question whether or not Lexi knew what had happened that night, whether she knew beforehand or afterwards, we may never know. But if Lexi has a role in this, they have not prosecuted her yet. They have not investigated her. There is no charges brought against her. Therefore, at this point in time, Lexi is innocent. However, she is still being hounded for having a part in the role of Skylar's murder. But, like I said, you live in the country where you are innocent until proven guilty. Sometimes you're guilty until proven innocent. Lexi, she still gets blowback from this. However, she was never prosecuted. It never came up that she was she partook in any of it at all. So, spoiler alert, Lexi's not it either. Now, let's move back to Tara, okay? Sheila's mom and her involvement. Remember back just a little ways, not too long ago, we talked about Rachel having lunch with her mother's friend and she slipped up and said something along the lines that she would have to talk to Tara first and get her approval, whatever. And immediately we're thinking, why do you have to talk to somebody else's mom? We figure out, you know, she's helping the girls sneak around and hang out with each other because Patricia's not kosher with Rachel hanging out with Sheila. 
it's obvious that the two together do not equal a good person. So they're not good. They're toxic for one another. And Patricia wants to put distance between them. Tara wants to diminish that distance. And she wants to make sure that neither girl goes down for saying something out of line and their stories need to match up. So she's helping them align their stories, right? Well, let's go back. So Tara, she's intertwined into these girls and what's going on far more than anyone thought she could have been. Not surprising, Sheila had to get her personality somewhere. Not saying that Tara did wrong. She was a mother trying to protect her child. So I'm not saying she did wrong. However, she was dead set on these girls lining up. So not only was Rachel told to talk to her before she talked to anyone involving anything that happened that night. Because Rachel was to 100% of the time turn to Tara and ask before saying anything. Tara is actively giving Sheila alcohol and weed to help calm her down because of the pressures that were coming from investigators. Sheila was just stressed. So she's actively inhibiting her child because of the stress. Eh, pick him up, take him to the doctor. Let's, let's get him some prescription medication. Do not self-medicate. But then Tara says something a little sketchy. Towards the beginning of all of this, Tara says something along the lines to somebody else in the family that if Sheila had her passport, they would be gone. You do not run unless you have something to hide. And Tara was quick to get ready to run. We question motives at that point. Tara also knew where the girls were that night. They weren't out gallivanting around Star City. She knew they were up in Pennsylvania, close to Wayne Township, on that desolate stretch of road that Rachel and Sheila stabbed their friend. She, whether she knew that's what happened, totally different topic for a different time. But she knew that's where her daughter was, and that she, that's where Rachel was, and she knew that's where Skyler was. Where Sheila and Rachel are telling investigators, well, we didn't, we just drove around for like 30, 45 minutes. No, that drive, about 35 minutes from Skylar's house to the point that Skylar died. 35 minutes. Tara knew, and she didn't say nothing. Tara was not only not sharing any of this information with investigators. I get it. Like I said before, she was a mother. She was trying to protect her young. Whether or not she knew exactly what happened that night, we'll never know. I don't see her coming forward and saying she knew, because if she did, that makes her culpable after the fact. She's an accessory after the fact. That has jail sentence. So, will we ever figure out whether or not she knew? Eh, probably not. I don't see her throwing herself under the bus. Can we fault her for this, though? We can. Because we are outsiders looking in and putting ourselves into those shoes has not occurred. But let me stop you and ask you to put your shoes, take your shoes off, put her shoes on, and think like her for half a second. Would you not try to help your child in any way you can? If you are not fully aware of the whole story, do you think you're doing anything wrong by making sure stories are lined up? No. Um, if you're privy to that information, what you're doing is extremely wrong, okay? 
You're no longer a mother protecting her young. You're tampering with evidence and testimonies and the investigation and everything. So we can step back and we can say, um, so you didn't make the best motherly decisions, right? But we weren't there. That's not our child. So should we fault her? No. Like I said, no other charges have been brought up against anybody else, including Tara. So investigators take her for a mother protecting her child. I just think she did a little bit more than I would have. It seems like that if you were close to Sheila in any way, you were automatically blackballed. You've got Chrissy blackballed, Shayna blackballed, Lexi to this day is blackballed. Tara's not blackballed. She's the only one I don't think I've seen anything super negative come out about her. Like I said, we can fault her, yes, but it's not enough to blackball her. She was never speculated as having her hand in the role of Skylar's disappearance or her murder. And if she had, if she did, yikes. That's all I gotta say. All right, so where I think Tara faltered, though, was when she started to try to control Rachel and what Rachel did and what Rachel didn't do. This was not her daughter, but yet she desired to have Rachel under her thumb. She had Sheila. Now she needed Rachel. And in order to protect Sheila, Rachel had to be there too. But what I think this did was speed up Rachel's spiral out of control and destruction. And for that, we are thankful. I just wish this could have happened a lot sooner than it did. Because we're looking beginning of December. Five months. Five months this child has been gone from her home. Five months people have been out searching for her for five months and nobody did anything. But then Rachel does something uncalculated. She changes the story without talking to Tara or Sheila. She tells investigators to this new story that Sheila and Rachel dropped Skylar off at the Conaway home and not at the end of the street like they had said. Now, this lines up with the fact that some people were pointing the fingers of the Conaway boys and saying they had something to do with it. And so Rachel, on a whim, ran with it. That's what I think. Okay? I don't think Dylan or Derek had anything to do with anything that happened that night. But Rachel saw an easy target. And she's like, well, I can say that we took her to that house and since Derek was already in trouble, well, it would just make sense, right? That's where she's thinking. What she failed to do was tell Sheila until after the fact. So here's Sheila saying, we picked her up at 11, drove around, smoked some weed. She got mad. We took her home. And then here's Rachel going, we picked her up at 11, drove around, smoked weed, and then we dropped her off at Dylan and Derek's house got two different stories it's not good so what happens Rachel talks to Sheila and then Sheila calls the investigators and goes hey I kind of need to come clean and then she tells the exact same story so now their stories line up again right Conaway boys they're guilty us no mm -mm. 
instead of seeing this as a break in the case and trying to prosecute Derek or Dylan, they saw something else. There's this beautiful house, a little rickety, that Sheila and Rachel have built. It's a house of lies, is what I like to call it. And this shift and change in the story broke apart that foundation that that house sits on. The rickety, beautiful-looking house starting to sway. And investigators see that. A resident of Fairmont, she comes forward. She likes to remain anonymous. Don't blame her. Because this was in passing. She saw Tara with Sheila and Rachel coming out of a grocery store. Okay. And this conversation was obviously not meant for anybody else's ears. This lady was fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at that. She caught wind of it. And this is what Tara pressured to the girls. That Rachel started with Skylar getting mad. So Rachel's saying, well, Skylar got mad. And Tara's like, yes. And Sheila goes, and then she ran away. And Tara goes, yes. And then Tara rounds out the story with, that was it, right? And both girls go, yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay. So we've changed stories again. At this point, this change is just, it's, I've said this to many of friends that have, that are devoted listeners to my podcast, which is awesome. Thank you for your support. Uh, this case, I feel like I have done nothing but talk in circles to you guys. And I hate that. I hate feeling like I'm coming across unprepared because that is not the case. I'm very prepared. However, this case talks in circles. It's sickening. I hate it. This case was intriguing and the evidence and the storyline, all of it, so captivating. However, putting this into a chronological order, I'm better off trying to bay the cat. This is just impossible. And so I feel like I have failed in this in this series i will have plenty of friends say that i didn't but because of the amount of going back and changing the path of the conversation over and over and over and constantly talking in a giant loop i feel that way and so if you were following me at this point thank you thank you for your support thanks for listening this far i promise i'll clarify this here shortly so another change has happened. This new story is Sheila, Rachel, and Skylar went over the border to their favorite spot to smoke. Skylar got mad. Skylar ran into the woods. Sheila and Rachel looked for her for quote-unquote hours before having to give up and go home. So what are we? Change four? Change five? I don't know. I'm not. I don't have a tally board in front of me. Again, the story changes. The story is the foundation of this lie. And every time it changes, the more it shifts and the more the house sways and moves and creaks and breaks. This, this, this house of lies that these two girls have spun is threatening to come down at any moment. And if investigation can get the right evidentiary lead, They'll tear the whole thing down with one huff.
once the, the girls have changed their stories yet again, this was the break investigators needed. They needed this in order to keep going forward. And they found it with yet their last change to the story. And instead of them becoming persons of interest and wanting to know what it was they were hiding, Rachel Schof and Sheila Eddy became prime suspects in the disappearance of Skylar. Here we are about mid-December into the investigation and it's finally time for those polygraph tests. At the West Virginia State Police Department or detachment, I think is what they call it, both girls were scheduled to come in and take their exam at different times. And Tara delivers Sheila. And Sheila and Rachel's attorneys were confident that their clients did not have anything to do with Skylar's disappearance. Therefore, taking these polygraphs was nothing. It was going to be a walk in the park for them. The only thing that could come that would become incriminating would be the trio's drug use. Again, Skylar never dabbled in anything harder than weed. So in today's society, weed is not looked at like it was 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Okay. We're starting to come around. States are starting to legalize medicinal marijuana. States have started to legalize recreational marijuana. So the fact that these girls may get in trouble because they are smoking weed was the least of the attorney's problem. As far as being involved in the disappearance of their friend, eh, no, no way. Neither attorney could see it. So Sheila goes in first and she takes the polygraph test. She walks into the detachment. She's sure she would pass. And if she didn't, she had the best excuse in the world. She had texted that, I guess she had texted to Rachel that if she didn't pass the polygraph test, then her excuse was simple. She was nervous because she had to come in and take a polygraph. And if they would just re-administer it, she would pass. So she was confident. You know, if I don't pass, I got, I got the best excuse in the world. I'm just nervous. Guess what? Sheila failed. And her simplistic excuse that she was nervous didn't work. Investigators knew Sheila was hiding something. However, they just didn't have quite the idea of what it was she was hiding. Now, here comes Rachel. It's her turn. And her father is bringing her in. And she is a nervous wreck. She can't sit still. Her mind's going 100 miles an hour. And she finds out Tara's not going to be there at the detachment center. Because she has to go to Star City Police Department and pick up all the electronics that were seized during the serving of the warrants way back when, right? So as Rachel is on her way, her dad pulls up to a stoplight and slows down just enough for Rachel to bolt from the car and take off. And she takes off running. And instead of running in the direction of her home, or her father's home, or her mother's home, she runs in a completely different direction. Where is she running to? Tara's office. She runs for over a mile until she gets to Tara's office, and from there, Tara takes her and Sheila to Star City Police Department to pick up Sheila's electronics. 
And at this point, Cole Bank had her shift ended at about four o'clock that afternoon. And so she had gone and picked up her kid and made arrangements and come back so she could hear what happened during Rachel's polygraph. They were already aware Sheila failed hers. So Tara is coming in to pick up the electronics. And just before she gets there, Barry breaks the news to Colbank that Rachel never showed up for her polygraph. So what happened? Colbank didn't know, but she knew who she was going to talk to. And that was Tara. So when Tara showed up to pick up her daughter's electronics, Colbank said something along the lines of, did you know that Rachel didn't make it for her scheduled appointment for the polygraph? And Tara confidently says, yeah, she's in the car. Her and Sheila are going to hang out. And Colbank looks at her like, are you serious? And Colbank goes, well, she's supposed to go down to the West Virginia State Police Detachment Center and take her polygraph. And Tara rebuts back with, well, she's hanging out with Sheila right now. And that was that for Tara. That was it. That was a good enough excuse as to why she did not go in and take her polygraph test. But at this point, Colvick had had enough of this shit. She was done. And so <laughs> Colvick flat out, and I'm laughing because Jessica Colbank is me. <laughs> okay. She, she, I, you can push me for a while before I speak up my and say my mind, okay? But there are some things that it doesn't take a whole lot of pushing, and this would have been one of them. So when Colbank <laughs> hears Tara go, well, she's hanging out with Sheila now, she flat out says something um, along the lines of, why are you helping the girls lie? And Tara says, she had nothing to do with what these girls are doing. And Colbank was just like, what? The Christmas holiday is coming up. And Colbank points out the fact to Tara. She plays on Tara's motherly instinct saying, you know, how would you feel if Sheila was the one missing and she found out her friend, Skylar and Mary, weren't doing everything they could to help with the investigation? It seems like y'all don't want her to be found. And Tara responds, we do too, you know, two-year-old. And then Tara goes one step further and says, how can you do this? You guys are ruining these girls' lives. They are getting harassed and picked on at school. All of their friends are accusing them. The whole town's accusing them. They don't know anything. This is one step too far for Colbank. And she loses her cool. She says, you are her tool. And she is using you to hide from us. These girls know exactly where Skylar is. You are an idiot if you have not seen that by now. After all the evidence you know we have. Tara's blinders are momentarily lifted. And she says, I just can't believe it. Colbank was like a lion with a wounded wildebeest and she goes at her again and she says, well, you need to open your eyes and believe it because those girls did something to her and know exactly where she is. She's dead. 
wherever she is, she is dead and they know where she's at. You need to end this for Dave and Mary's family. At this point, Tara breaks down crying and she leaves the police department. That's it. That's all the confrontation was and that's all that needed to happen before they removed Colbank from the investigation. Because she did not bite her tongue during that encounter, the lead investigator, Jessica Colbank, with the Star City Police Department was removed from the case. Was there a line crossed? Yes. Does that mean she needed to be completely removed from the case? No. I could understand you moving her from like lead investigator, put somebody else out front that maybe can control their emotions a little better. However, at this point, this being the only outburst she had, I say you're doing a damn good job because there have been several times during the research that I've just wanted to shake Sheila's mother and be like, what is wrong with you? Why are you not seeing this? But again, I'm an outsider looking in after the fact. I see it all because it's all laid out there for me. She was there as it happened. So not standing up for her. I'm just saying hindsight's 2020. The infamous Josie Snyder, she pops back up on Twitter and it's pointed out by Barry that they are starting to realize whoever Josie Snyder is, she has some amazing contacts because coincidence has long left the possibility of what's happening in the investigation and what is being tweeted. It's now, people are wondering, how are you getting your intel? And Barry tries to subpoena to unveil whoever Josie Snyder was, but it was unsuccessful. Josie Snyder was able to hide behind the anonymity of her Twitter account. However, once it came out that Barry, one of the investigators in the case, wanted to find out who she was, who he was, they went dormant for a little bit. You didn't hear anything from them for like 14 days, I think is what it would, until Sheila's outcome of her polygraph comes to light. And then on December 16th, Josie starts tweeting again, and she says at 6.31 p.m. on December 16th, failed lie detector, no shit, no one gonna come out and say the truth, how you purposely OD your BFF. At 6.59 p.m., oh no no, hiding from Popo. At 7.08 p.m., and this tweet is speculated to be a reply to a text between whoever Josie Snyder was or is to whoever Mia Barra is. And this tweet said, no, but one failed, one hiding out so the one that failed doesn't take care of business like she has witnessed. Hashtag BFF scared of BFF. So she's implicating the fact that Rachel did not go through with taking her polygraph test because she was scared of what may come to light during it and Sheila may find out, therefore, she could be off as well. Josie, she's pointing out something that nobody has yet to see. Rachel is being eaten alive by the guilt, okay? We see that plain and clear. Every time you turn around, this child is doing something to just completely derail her life, okay? From the moment 
almost the moment that she gets back from church camp. So as Rachel's being eaten alive, she knew if she went to take that polygraph, she was going to cave. She knew it. She wasn't dumb. She knew where her Jiminy Cricket lie. She would come clean. And that scared her. So jumping out of her dad's car and going to Tara meant she wouldn't have to take the test. She wouldn't have to fail it. She wouldn't have to tell the truth. And she wouldn't have to face the possible wrath of a mentally unstable Sheila and Sheila's mother. Josie Snyder put it together for us. Whoever this person is did one hell of a job pushing the right buttons in the investigation. Investigators were digging for lawful evidence that could stand up in the court of law. Josie Snyder and Mia Barr kind of pushed that along a little quicker. Now, Colbank, she's been ousted at this point, okay? She's no longer on the investigation. But when she was, Colbank, Spurlock, Gaskins, and Barry, like I said, on a daily basis, were going over this footage front to back, back to front, up to down, down to up. They did it frame by frame. They did it forward. They did it backwards. They did it every way they knew how even to the point of finding a way to blow up the images so they could really tear apart what kind of car this was. And then, like I said before, Barry had mentioned, what if that was Sheila's car? But it never gained traction, right? Well, here we are, middle of December. And the thing they are looking at, it's right there in front of them, driving into the footage and out again at approximately 12.31 a.m., we see it because we know what they saw, what they eventually saw. Had they not seen, we would not know. We are watching this case unfold because it happened eight years ago, right? But Barry, he asked the right question. Where was Sheila's car at 11 p.m. when she said she was picking Skylar up? It's not on the footage. Therefore, the car that pulls into frame at 12.31 a.m. and Skylar runs from her bedroom window to the back seat of this vehicle has to be Sheila Eddie's car. Ding, ding, ding. Barry got it. We broke into the case a second time. So we have the stories ever-changing. That's the foundation of their beautiful house of lies, right? Well, they've now figured out Sheila's car is not there at 11 p.m. like she said it was. So the car we are looking at has to be Sheila's, right? Right. I mean, because the girls will admit to the fact that they were with Skylar that night. However, the thing they don't admit to is what time. So it's the girls, the very angelic girls, the girls with the stellar reputation, the girls that can never do what everybody can't see. These are the girls. It drove up at 12.31 a.m. July 6th, picked Skylar niece up, and drove off into the night with her, never to bring her home again. At this point, Dave and Mary, they're on the same page, okay? Mary's suspicions, thanks to Colbank, were strong at this point, and Dave was on the same page as his wife. When you see cases like this where a child is murdered, you see one or two outcomes for their family. The family either grows together and gets stronger, or unfortunately, the family grows apart and splits. Dave and Mary had a rocky point 
no doubt in their marriage when Skylar first disappeared, but they were a united front throughout the entire thing. Dave was Mary's rock. Mary was Dave's rock. And Mary's suspicions became Dave's suspicions. When Barry showed up at their home, he had a plan. He knew Sheila and Rachel had been lying since day one. Dave and Mary knew Sheila and Rachel had been lying since day one. Barry wanted to use Team Skylar 2012, the Facebook page that Dave and Mary started, to shake the tree and see what falls out. If you do not know that expression, it's basically put something out there and see what bites. Just some information, truthful information. We don't need to lie. I promise something will come of it. So Mary posts to her personal Facebook page and to the Team Skylar page about what it has been like for her and Dave since Skylar went missing. And the jolt, the thing to shake the tree, was Sheila and Rachel were called out for not telling what they know. Quote, this is truly the ultimate betrayal. These girls are more guilty than originally suspected. It looks like foul play has occurred and murder has not been ruled out. End quote. This post resulted in the loss of another investigator. Chris Berry was removed from the case and ostracized along with Colbank because Gaskins was calling the nieces the very next day after this post went live, screaming at Mary to take it down. Barry was right. You shake the tree hard enough, something's going to fall. Mary shook the tree hard enough. At Christmas time of 2012, both Sheila and Rachel were acting out more and more and more. They had both been ridiculed, bullied. They were skipping school. They were smoking weed. They were dabbling in the harder drugs, possibly still engaging with sexual encounters with one another. That's neither here or there. But Sheila has been known to have sex with more than just one person. So she's dabbling in sexual encounters with other people as well. They're pushing their boundaries. And Tara, she started to vocally disprove of Sheila's defiance. And the hold that Tara thought she had on the two girls, it's spiraling and it's long gone. Okay. Shayna, Sheila's friend, she knew Sheila was missing her friend Skylar. At least that's what she thought. And that's why Sheila was acting out the way she was. So in an effort to rein Sheila back in and help out, she decided she was going to make something very special for Sheila for Christmas. So she printed out all these photographs of Sheila, Shayna, and Skylar and put them together in a very well-crafted collage. And all the photographs that she printed, they didn't fit. So the rest of the photos were put in a bag. The gift was in the bag as well. So Sheila, she got not only this beautiful, handcrafted, very thoughtful Christmas gift from Shayna, she got all those other photographs that were printed but could never be used. And so Shayna comes over to spend the night with Sheila one night and gifts her this Christmas gift. And that evening, Shayna and Sheila and Tara sit down and they kind of go over the, the photographs and laughing and crying and smiling and joking and telling stories. What we all do when we sit down with nostalgic photographs, that's what these, these three girls did. Now, when Shayna comes back to stay with Sheila about a week after giving her the gift, 
All the pictures of Skylar have been removed from the collage and they are now in the gift bag. Sheila was effectively removing Skylar in every way she could. Why? Possibly so she wouldn't feel the guilt from what had occurred. Or possibly Skylar did not mean to Sheila what Sheila meant to Skylar. Plain and simple. At this point, Christmas is over. Mary and Dave have spent yet another holiday without their daughter. And Rachel had spent Christmas with her father and was now due to go home to her mother's. But she was determined she was not going to spend even a moment with Patricia. In her mind, Patricia was forcing her to do things she didn't want to do. In a way to kind of help their daughter, Patricia and Rusty, Rachel's parents, they got together and decided that Rusty would move back into the home with Patricia and Rachel feigning he was sick and needed help. In this way, Rachel was forced to be home with both parents and they could help her get the help she needed. They had already started planning to send Rachel to talk to a therapist. However, the planning came too late. As Rusty and Rachel pull up to Patricia's house, Patricia comes out trying to remove Rachel's suitcase from the car and Rachel is standing in the driveway screaming to leave it there, that she was not going to stay there with her, that, you know, all you're doing is ruining my life. And Patricia is, she's worried. She's worried what everybody is going to see and hear in the cul-de-sac of their neighborhood. What she failed to realize was Rachel had her iPod and she was filming the entire thing and Sheila was watching it. These girls were so intertwined that until they were separated, you weren't going to get anywhere with them. So Patricia ends up moving Rachel into the house and Rachel and Rusty and Patricia are arguing in the living room. Now there are two accounts to this story. It is said that Rachel was on the ground with Patricia straddling her, slapping her and punching her and telling her to calm down before 911 was called. Now, the other side is it was Patricia on the ground with Rachel over the top of her, punching her and hitting her and telling her she wasn't going to do these things. What we do know is a 911 call came in with Patricia on the phone saying that she needed help at her residence because her daughter had lost control and they couldn't help her. They needed them to come out and help restrain her because they couldn't handle her anymore. Police came out to the home. And at that point, everything had simmered down a little bit. And so there wasn't really anything that could be done. However, Rusty and Patricia were informed that it was under their legal right as the guardian of Rachel to get her some mental cleansing is what they called it. But in reality, it's just mental health. So the planning stage of trying to get Rachel in to see a therapist, it was fast forward quickly. And the police department ended up leaving the show home that day. And Rusty and Patricia and Rachel loaded into the car. And Patricia and Rusty, they committed their daughter to the mental hospital there in West Virginia. This was December 28th of 2012, and it will forever be known as the date that changed this investigation. January, 
January 3rd, 2013, Rachel walks out of the mental hospital ready to finally tell what had happened in the early morning hours of July 6th. Rachel was asked to be taken directly to Angotti's office when she got out by Angotti. This is her lawyer. And so when Rachel got out, instead of going home, she went directly to Angotti's office, her attorney, where she sat down with FBI Special Agent Rob Ambrosini and Corporal Gaskins. Rachel started story hour with this quote, I need a wastebasket because I'm probably going to throw up. And the questions started to fly. And Rachel answered each one with a shake of her head indicating no. Was there a party? No. Did she overdose? No. And then finally, the right question made Rachel become vocal. And the question was, well, what did happen, Rachel? And Rachel said, we stabbed her. A break no one in that room expected to hear came January 3rd, 2013. Sheila and Rachel stabbed Skylar. The two girls who were supposed to be her best friends turned in that moment and showed her who they really are. Not her friends, not people she was close with. They were none of those things, just people who would eventually take her life. Nothing more. Rachel told them the story of stabbing Skylar on three and how Skylar fought hard enough to get the knife away from Rachel and cut her leg. She even said, I have a scar. Do you want to see it? Then she proceeded to lift her pant leg of her right leg, revealing the three-inch scar from where Skylar had sliced open Rachel's skin in the heat of the moment. When they asked her why, she had no logical reason, only this, quote, we just didn't like her, end quote. 181 days from the moment that Skylar disappeared into the night into a mysterious car, investigators knew what had happened to the vanishing girl. Now they wanted to know where she was, and Rachel agreed to show them, but it came with a plea. She would take them and show them where Skylar was if she was offered a plea deal. So, Rachel rode in one of the two cars and it led them out into Pennsylvania of Wayne Township where Skylar's body lay underneath the snow and debris and everything else that had happened in those 181 days. Investigators would end up marking this address on GPS so that they could return once the elements got better because there was no way they were going to get out and find Skylar in the amount of snow that was on the ground. Now, investigators needed to get Sheila, and Rachel said that she would help collect evidence in order to bring Sheila down. So, Rachel goes home, and Sheila finally she gets to go see her friend. She tried for the days that Rachel was in the hospital to go see her. But Patricia Schof had made it perfectly clear to security that the only people allowed to see Rachel during this time was family, which meant Patricia and Rusty only, not Tara, not Sheila, not investigators. No one 
could go in and see Rachel except for Patricia and Rusty. And Sheila tried several times. She tried to go and see Rachel, but nothing ever came of it. So when she found out that Rachel was out and was at home, Sheila's mom drove her over to Rachel's house, dropped her off and said to circle the block waiting for the girls to get done. And when Sheila knocked on the door, Rachel answered it. And the very first thing that Sheila noticed was Rachel was now sporting this very fancy, very nice watch. And she says to her, nice watch, Rachel. I've never seen you wear one before. Where'd the watch come from? Well, that came from investigators. Because due to the holidays, there was more cars in the cul-de-sac than normal, never to be thought about. And Tara's making her way through the neighborhood, right? And she doesn't ever figure out that several cars have investigators sitting in it and they are all taking notes as they are listening to the conversation going on between Rachel and Sheila. Eventually, Sheila leaves the house and nothing comes from the encounter. She says nothing incriminating during the time and investigators have nothing. But the good news is the 1900 times Tara drove by just circling the block, she never figured out investigators were sitting there watching. They probably had some kind of idea, but they didn't, they didn't know. Well, January 4th of 2013, Gaskins with three fellow troopers show up at Sheila's house. They're there to serve one of the new warrants to Sheila. Tara wasn't home. So when Sheila opened the door and Gaskin said that he had a warrant to search the house, she called her mom. And Tara eventually ended up on the phone with Gaskins and asked them if they could wait till she could get home. She was about 15 minutes away. And they said they could wait, but they had to wait inside with Sheila to make sure she wasn't going to harm herself or destroy any evidence that they were there to collect, which in the end turned out to be no problem. And Tara got there as soon as she could. And Gaskins handed her a copy of the warrant. Now, when Tara arrived, so did four FBI agents. So not only do we have four West Virginia State Police troopers standing there ready to serve a warrant, we now have four FBI guys. This isn't looking good. And you don't even have to know what the warrant said to know this isn't looking good. So when she gets her copy of the warrant, only one word is sticking out. Murder. When Sheila sees this, her eyes get big. Investigators, Gaskin, and his fellow troopers and FBI agents are there to collect every single knife from the Eddie home before collecting all of the electronics in the house. They are going to scour this with a fine-tooth comb. They're going to figure it out. All of the knives were photographed in their position that they were found, and then they were bagged, tagged, and removed. Tara even asked at one point if they could leave one of the knives behind so she could cook dinner, and they told her no. They had everything, and Sheila's car, it's gone. It's also in the possession of investigators. By mid-January, with her car seized, her electronics seized, and every knife in her home gone, 
Sheila and Rachel were pulled out of University High School and they were homeschooled from this point. At this point, Rachel is not in custody as she is still working to try and help investigators get Sheila. So January 16th of 2013 rolls around. Investigators have finally gotten to a point where the weather has cleared up enough that they can go back to the GPS coordinates that they had targeted when Rachel took them to the location and they could finally look for Skylar's body. There underneath the mush of dead leaves and branches and God only knows what else, they find the remains of Skylar. Her head is missing. They don't have any idea where her skull is. It's been detached from the body. So they recover Skylar. They take photographs. Obvious thanks to the elements and to the amount of time that Skylar had been gone. There was no evidentiary evidence that was going to be at the kill site. The only thing they could get from there is Skylar's remains. And they collected them and took them to the West Virginia coroner's office. It is not released to the media. It's not released to Dave and Mary. It's not released to Sheila or Rachel that Skylar has been recovered. Nobody knows. And they want it that way. In February of 2013, Skylar's law, which is a modification to the qualifications for issuing an Amber Alert in West Virginia. At the time that Skylar went missing, the only way an Amber Alert could be issued is if she had been abducted. Skylar's law changed those requirements to issue an Amber Alert immediately when a child or teen is reported missing, regardless of whether the child is believed to have been kidnapped. Dave and Mary have missed so much work at this point, they didn't even have enough money to fill their gas tank, but Dave didn't care. He drove down to West Virginia State Capitol so that he could address the committee. He was there to talk about his daughter and her missing. What nobody knew is Dave was already aware they had recovered Skylar's remains. Dave stood up in front of the House and Senate and spoke of the importance it needed to have an amendment done to the qualifications of how and when an Amber Alert could be issued. Now, we know that Star City Police Chief tried several times to have an Amber Alert issued, but due to the fact that she was not deemed in any immediate danger because she was not kidnapped, then an Amber Alert could not have been issued. We know now there's no way an Amber Alert would have done any good in this case. However, it could save a child somewhere in the future. So Dave addressed the House and the Senate. Schuyler's law passed that very day. It was 98 to 0 in the House and 34 to 0 in the Senate. Dave and Mary's daughter's life did not end without her leaving her mark on this world. No other child or teen would go missing without an Amber Alert being issued. It would have been the very thing that she would want out of life. To make a difference in someone else's life. On March 13th of 2013, news broke. Remains found in Wayne Township, Pennsylvania on January 16th, 2013 
were identified as those of Skylar Annette Neese. Investigators were only one step away from arresting Sheila Eddy and Rachel Shope. On March 16th of 2013, Gaskins returned to the kill site. There, he found Skylar's skull and brought it home. On April 29th of 2013, Governor Earl Ray Tomlin signed into law Skylar's Law, an amendment to the qualifications of issuing an Amber Alert. On May 1st, 2013, Rachel Schoff was taken into police custody for her role in the murder of Skylar Neese on July 6th of 2012. Rachel turned herself into the Mangala County Circuit Court, and I probably just butchered that county. Rachel, she just turned herself in. And I have a feeling this was part of the plea. Once investigators knew that they had enough that they could charge Sheila, Rachel was to turn herself in. If she didn't, she was going against her plea and it would be off the table. As Rachel is in a hearing regarding her self-surrender, Gaskins is standing there waiting for the phone call from the prosecutor's office to go out and be able to arrest Sheila. Once they get the phone call, they head out to Sheila's house. When they get there, they see that nobody is home. And Gaskins can only think of one way to figure out where they are, and that's to pick up the phone and call Tara. So he does. And Tara says, well, here at Cracker Barrel, eating, we'll be there when we get done. He's like, okay, yeah. He doesn't wait around the house. They head off to the Cracker Barrel. The exits are blocked for the restaurant, and Tara and Sheila are seen exiting the restaurant when they are asked, are you Tara Clinadin? And Sheila Eddy and Tara says yes. And at that point, Gaskins walks up and he arrests Sheila Eddy for the murder of Skylar Neese. And Tara has nothing to say. She sits down on the curb as she watches them put shiny new bracelets on her daughter. And in her hand is a copy of the arrest warrant where she is staring there, looking at the words, looking back at her, that says that they have probable cause to believe that Sheila partook in the murder of Skylar Neese. Far worse than anything Tara had imagined that her daughter had done, I think. As they are arresting Sheila, they go to put her in the back of the cruiser. And this girl says, you can't put me back there. People are going to see me back there. And Gaskin says, they are. Because you're being arrested. And Sheila turns to him and she says, well, don't put me in there with any mean people. Now, whether or not Gaskins says anything back, I don't know. I could never find anything. I did crack up hearing that Sheila said this because I want to be like, Sheila, honey, you murdered someone. You are the mean people. Does that not register with her? I don't know. Rachel ended up pleading guilty to second degree murder in her role of killing Skylar Neese. Due to her plea deal, the charge of murder in the first degree was reduced. She was taken into custody to the Northern Regional Juvenile Detention Center in Wheeling, West Virginia. At this point, Sheila is being trans 
ported over to Lori Yeager Juvenile Center in Parkersburg, West Virginia. On July 10th of 2013, Dave and Mary learned that Greene County Coroner will release Schuyler's death certificate so that they can hold Schuyler's memorial service. On July 20th of 2013, Schuyler's final memorial service is held and the public turns out to say goodbye to the girl they had been searching for. Mary and Dave had had their own small memorial for Schuyler with their family up in Wayne Township. It is determined that Dave and Mary could fill their daughter most in that spot. And they were content with knowing that she was happy being where she was. So that is where the very personal memorial service occurred. The bigger one that happened on July 20th was inside of a church where the public turned out there was not enough seats in the house. Today, a memorial sets on the stretch of Desolate Road in Wayne Township, Pennsylvania for Skylar Nice. You can get online, find the GPS coordinates, and you can go and visit the site yourself. It's beautiful. Dave and Mary take a lot of pride in keeping up with it. And it's just, it's there for anybody who has the desire to sit down and connect with Skylar. That's why it's there. That's where their daughter was the happiest. On September 5th or September 6th, it's not clear, of 2013, Sheila is indicted on four felony counts. One count of first-degree murder. Sheila enters a plea of not guilty. On one count of kidnapping, Sheila enters a not guilty plea. On two counts of conspiracy to commit murder and kidnapping, Sheila enters a not guilty plea. On September 30th of 2013, Sheila's attorney, Mike Benninger, files one of 12 motions. This one motion was to grant bond to his client while both sides sift through the evidentiary paperwork and things like that. His motion was denied with one word, no. On January 24th of 2014, Sheila is led into the courtroom. Everyone is on high alert as there have been many threats made against Sheila's life for her role in Skylar's murder. Sheila's attorney had sat down and he had looked at the evidence and he tried every which way to put together a defense, but it just wasn't happening. So I could imagine that Tara was asked to talk to Sheila because it would be against the policy of Mike talking to her about taking the plea deal um, because he couldn't represent her fully. So I, Tara had to have sat down with her daughter and said, look, the only way we're going to get out of this is if we plead guilty and hope that courts have mercy on us. So on January 24th of 2014, Sheila stands in front of a courtroom. One side of the courtroom is the niece family and everybody there to support Skylar. The other half is her family. And you can see that there's not as many people in the seats as there is on Skylar's side. And the judge asks Sheila if she understood the charges. And she says yes. And he asks, and how do you plead? And Sheila says guilty. 
she pleads guilty to all four counts. And in that moment, Sheila is also sentenced. The judge asks her if she has any words that she would like to say or address the court, and she just shakes her head no. It's reported that this is the only time that Sheila's in court that she shows any kind of emotion. And you can't help but wonder if it's because she got caught, not necessarily because she was remorseful. She never spoke to the court. We have no idea what was going through her mind that day. Now, Dave gets up and he speaks to the court. And Mary's sister gets up and speaks to the court. And they plead with the judge to give her the maximum sentence allowed. Sheila is prosecuted as an adult. However, we've got a gray area here. Because she was arrested as a juvenile, the maximum sentence for her is life with the possibility of mercy at 15. Now, in West Virginia, they call it mercy. Everywhere else, we call it the possibility of parole. So, after 15 years served, Sheila has the possibility to stand in front of a parole board and possibly be granted parole and have a chance to get out into the free world. It was also sentenced that Sheila was to be moved to the adult penitentiary as soon as the bed became available. At the point that she pled guilty, Sheila was 18 years old. She was an adult, by all intents and purposes. So, it didn't matter if a bed was available before she could get back to the juvenile detention center or if it was 30 days out. Whenever the first bed came open, Sheila was going. So she was able to return to the juvenile detention center, but it was short-lived. On February 26, 2014, Rachel is, escorted. Rachel is escorted into the courtroom for her sentencing trial. Tension is not as high during Rachel's sentencing as it was during Sheila's, as there was not as many threats against her life, I guess. It was a lot more tamed feeling. You can go online and you can watch both of the sentencings. And you can tell there's a difference in the two. You can tell just, just sitting there watching, you can feel the tension difference. Rachel is handed the sentence of 30 years with mercy at 10, possibility of parole at 10 years. It was asked that she remain in the juvenile detention center until she reached the age of 21, which is the maximum age of being held inside of a juvenile detention center. However, the judge says that she will remain inside the juvenile detention center until she reaches the age of 18, which is that July, at which time she will be transferred to the adult penitentiary. She is asked if she would like to address the court. The red-headed teenager whose locks were once long are now short, and she carries a considerable amount of weight versus when she went in. She looks completely different doesn't even look like the girl from her pictures. She stands up. Her hands are shackled in front of her and she is reading what she wrote down and it says, quote, I'm so sorry. I don't know if there is a proper way to make this apology because there aren't any words to describe the guilt and remorse that I feel each day for what I have done. The person that did that is not the real me, not the person I am. Not what I am made of and not what I believe in. I don't think I ever thought this would actually happen. I became scared and caught up in something that I did not want to do. I never realized the gravity of my actions and how many people I've hurt. I hurt the niece family. 
and those who love Skylar. I hurt my parents and shamed my family. I hurt my extended family and all of my friends who loved me. I hurt my teachers and those who believed in me. I hurt my church family, my community, and those who trusted me. And I hurt my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God bring eternal peace to Skylar and the entire niece family. Again, I'm so sorry. And I pray each day for everyone involved. And I pray each day for forgiveness. Rachel and Sheila committed the ultimate sin, taking the life of Skylar Annette Niece. For the two girls, the reason may be very different and the same all in one time. They had a secret, one that neither wanted out into the world. But here we are now, and their secret is out. Rachel said they killed Skylar because they just didn't like her anymore. She had become a leech on their party of two. Rachel and Sheila grew closer, both okay with exploring their sexual selves. Were they gay? Maybe. But one thing was clear, Skylar was not okay with what they were doing. Sheila has had the most speculation thrown around about why she did it. She was bored of being handed everything and wanted to see if she really could get away with the perfect murder. With all the binge watching of true crime television drama that she loved to do, she thought she could. Another speculation was Skylar judged her and Rachel for their relationship and had to go. Another, Skylar was no longer up to Sheila's standards. Sheila was experimenting with her sexuality and more willing to experiment with her drug use than Skylar. Skylar was boring and Sheila wanted someone to idolize her, like Skylar once had. And finally, she just didn't like her anymore. All of these fit, but only one is the right one. And we may never know which it is. Rachel will go in front of the parole board in 2023. If she shows the right amount of remorse, she will have an opportunity to step out into the free world before she turns 30. Free to move on with her life with her new wife. Sheila will go in front of a parole board in 2028. She'll be 33 at the time. If she can show remorse, she will also have an opportunity to step out into the free world early enough to still start life over. Skylar has been gone for eight years, but her memory lives strong through her parents. They never allow one minute to happen without the thought of Skylar. A memorial for Skylar sits out on that desolate stretch of road where her killers left her. Her parents keep up with it and make sure it is accessible to those who need to sit and have time with Skylar. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we close out the Skylar Knees case. A story of two girls who killed a girl that thought she was their friend. We can't sit here and say that Sheila and Rachel were her best friends or even friends because friends do not do what these two girls did. This case is one of many where teenagers commit such heinous crimes with little to no thought of what would happen in the long run. Permanent solutions to temporary situations. As always, I will leave you with one last line. Moving on doesn't mean that you forget about things. It just means you have to accept what happened and continue living. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>